So if you've got your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 11. Um, Jesus kind of leading up to Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry is what it was called. Um, Jesus leading up to this had done some pretty cool things. Um, he had just kind of hit the, the, um, the, the pinnacle, I guess, of his ministry by raising Lazarus from the dead. That would be kind of cool, right? Can you imagine being there on the day that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? How cool would that have been? And so Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And now, according to John chapter 12, Lazarus has started traveling with Jesus. And apparently, when you've come back from the dead, you kind of draw a crowd with you. And so Lazarus is traveling around with Jesus and everybody's like, look, I see he was in the grave. I told you and now he's back and he used to stink and he had the dead and then he was in the tomb and the thing and it was bad and now look and this whole thing. And so as they're watching this um, take place, as Lazarus is traveling with Jesus, Jesus continues to do more miracles and he continues to um, teach. And then we see Jesus move to Come into the city. Now, here's an interesting historical um, fact, okay? On the 10th day of Nisan, not the car, but the day, the Jewish calendar, is a month called Nisan. And during the month of Nisan, on the 10th day, at this point in history, the Jewish people would select the lamb that they were going to sacrifice on the 14th day of Nisan. And it's interesting because Jesus comes into the town to present himself as the lamb ready to be slain to the people of Israel, and they didn't recognize him. And it happens that he did it on the 10th day of Nisan, the exact day that the Jewish people would have done this. So turn to Mark chapter 11. Let's start with verse 1. Verse 1. I think I'm going to read verse 1 through 3. It says, As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. So kind of get the picture here. Jesus is telling his disciples to go steal a donkey, right? And, and I don't know kind of how this felt, but try to put yourself in this moment, okay? Jesus is talking to the disciples, tells a few of them, hey, I want you guys to go into the city and, and grab a donkey for me. Do we buy the donkey? No, just, you'll find it tied up outside this house. Just go get it. And, uh, and, and if anybody comes out and asks you about it, you just kind of do a Jedi mind trick on them and hit them with, the Lord needs it. And, and just watch what happens. So let's read how this unfolds. It says, two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they're untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying the colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. So imagine this. I, I get this funny image, you know, because I was a teenager and I remember doing things that I wasn't supposed to do, you know, and getting caught in the middle of doing something that you weren't supposed to do. Um, I remember on a couple of occasions, we went outside um, our youth pastor's house and we took a bunch of forks and toilet paper and road construction barricades and we went out in front of his house and we stuck a bunch of plastic forks in his yard and we teepeed all of his trees and as we're putting construction barricades up in his front yard, he walks outside the house and shines the flashlight on us and we're all like, 
And, and I imagine that this is what it was like for the disciples. You know, they're, they're down on their knees over here trying to hotwire a donkey, you know. And, and as they're over here working on the donkey thing, trying to get it untied, you got a guy walks out and is like, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? And Peter's like, the Lord needs it. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, okay, good. You can take it. He's like, that worked? That was awesome. Like, can you imagine this moment? And so he works the little Obi-Wan Kenobi magic and, and all of this happens. And now let's read on. Um, verse seven, it says, then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it and he sat on it. And so, so the question is here, why a donkey? Why is this so important? Why does Jesus ask the disciples to go get a donkey? And, um, and so when we think about a conquering king coming into a city, and this is what the people of Israel are expecting, they're expecting the coming of the Messiah. And what they have anticipated is that with the coming of the Messiah, there will be a freedom. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to conquer the Roman Empire. He's going to depose the king. He's going to depose the Caesar. He's going to come in in power and he's going to rescue them from their oppression because these people are in their land, but the Romans are occupying their land and keeping them oppressed, keeping them in slavery, keeping them in bondage, making them pay taxes. And they're just kind of making the people do all of this stuff to serve the Roman government. And these people are ticked. They've had it. We don't want these oppressors over here lording over us. We've been waiting for the Messiah and we watched you raise Lazarus from the dead. We've seen you do all of these miracles and we think that you really are the one. This is gonna be amazing. And then Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. The donkey in this time period represented someone coming in peace. And if Jesus had been riding on a horse, it would have it would have indicated that he was coming to bring war. He was coming to start a fight. He was coming to kick the Roman government to the curb. And this is kind of what the people are hoping for. And so, so as they see Jesus riding in on this donkey, this, this peace animal, they're like, what? I don't understand what's going on. And so um, from this point, things start to go downhill a little bit. So read on verse eight, it says, Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. So what they're doing in this moment as Jesus is riding in on the donkey, is they're trying to force his hand. They're trying to get Jesus to change his game plan. Well, I see him coming in on the donkey, but if we treat him like a conquering king, maybe then he'll meet our expectations. Maybe then he'll do what we want him to do. And so they start throwing down their coats and they start throwing down the palm branches and they start paving the way for the conquering king. And in so doing, they're hoping that maybe, just maybe, He'll come around and do things our way. How about that? And so it's interesting because Americans aren't that different than first century Jewish people um, because we have a lot of expectations that we have on Jesus. And when he doesn't meet our expectations, we get disappointed. 
Because we've seen him perform miracles, right? We've seen him do amazing things. We've seen him transform lives. But when he doesn't do things the way we think that he should do things, we begin to get upset. Because it's the same people that are throwing down the palm branches and throwing down the coats and welcoming and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed on the com- blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, who was David. David was the warrior king. He established Israel as a superpower. They're saying, hey, here comes this one that's just like David, the warrior king. We've been waiting. Now we know that Jesus is coming back on a horse one day, right? But this wasn't the time. This wasn't the season. This wasn't the moment. And the people are disappointed. And so we talk a lot about faith as modern American Christians, don't we? But, but when it comes down to it, sometimes I think we have more faith in our faith than we have in our God. Sometimes we have more faith in what we think God should do instead of just having faith in God. There are things in my life, in my Christian walk that motivate me. There are things that get me excited. I love hearing the testimonies of people that are like, man, my boss challenged my faith one day on Wednesday. I walked in on Thursday and said, look, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be working here anymore because I'm not going to submit to this hostile work environment that is against my faith. And so I'm quitting today. And then the next day I got offered a job that paid three times as much money and they give me three days a week off, right? That's the kind of stories we like to hear. We get excited about those kinds of stories. But what about the times when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we think God should answer our prayers, right? What about the people that have prayed for their child with cancer and God doesn't bring the healing that they think that they need? Right. What happens when when you love somebody and then there's an affair? What do you do? You prayed, you asked God, you begged God. And the answer doesn't come the way you think it should. The Jewish people of this time, they were struggling. They were they were wanting some more miracles. They were waiting for a redeemer. They were waiting for a savior. They were waiting for somebody to deliver them. And this wasn't the way things were supposed to go. I was expecting something more. And what does Jesus, what does Jesus do when he comes in to town after Palm Sunday, after they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What what does he do? He goes over and curses a fig tree. Huh? I thought you were going to roll up to Herod's house and be like, look, we need to have a conversation. Right? But what's he do next? He goes to the temple and starts turning over tables in the temple. Hang, hang, hang on, Jesus. Look, I wanted you to go to Herod's house and turn over his kitchen table. Our temple's not the problem. He's the problem. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand the problem. Hmm. I wonder if that's the case for us. I wonder if that's the case for us. I wonder if we just don't understand the problem. You ever wonder if that might be the case? Sometimes the things that you're frustrated with God over, sometimes the things that that God leaves out that you think that he shouldn't have, and and we, we carry this kind of secret, quiet anger at God over his lack of response or maybe responding the way that we think that he shouldn't. You ever think that maybe we just don't understand the real situation? I meet people all the time who say things like, well, I just don't believe that anymore. I just don't believe that anymore. 
And I often ask them, I say, why don't you believe it? Because of research that you've done? Is it because you've, you've really dug in and plumbed the depths of the scripture and it's changed the way that you believe? And almost 100% of the time, it's feelings-based. It's an unmet expectation that we've placed on God. We say, God, I really think you need to do this. And God doesn't do it. And so we say, I just don't believe anymore. I don't believe anymore. I've talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating. I think I've heard people talk about this and and you ask them why they don't believe. I've met kids that have grown up in pastors' homes and missionaries' homes and and, um, that they end up losing their faith. And I've talked to a lot of them and um, usually the conversation starts like this. You know, I'm a thinker, which the implication is you're a moron. And, and, and when people say that, I, I, usually if somebody has to tell you they're a thinker, they're not really, okay? It's just been my experience. If somebody has to announce to you, hey, you know, I'm really smart, it's usually the opposite. But when somebody says that, I, I just kind of listen, and then they begin to, to talk to me, and what I discover is that they've made lifestyle choices that have gone against what they believe, And what happens when you begin to make lifestyle choices that go against what you believe, you have to choose two things, one of two things. You either have to choose to now change your lifestyle back to accommodate your belief system, or you have to change your belief system to accommodate your lifestyle, okay? And so if you think about the way that we believe as kind of a protective guardrail around us, what happens is we start to move that guardrail to include more things, right? And the the more that we move that guardrail, the closer to the edge of the cliff that we get. Have you noticed that? Guardrails aren't positioned right on the edge of the cliff. There's some margin there, right? So that if you bump up against the guardrail, you're like, oh, that just dinged up my car. But when you start to move it and move it and move it and move it and move it, eventually your guardrail will lose its strength because it's so close to the edge of the cliff that there's nothing to hold it in place. And it just takes a little bump and you're off the edge. And then you're angry at God. Well, God, why did you let this happen to me? Right? So as we we start to examine this, we've got to ask the question, you know, why don't I believe? Why am I struggling with my belief? Do you have anything in your life where you've moved your line of faith just a little bit to accommodate your lifestyle? Have you moved your line of faith to accommodate your lifestyle and said, well, look, we're probably going to get married anyway one day and she's hot and like, I I don't want to lose her. So we're just going to move in together. We're not going to have sex. (laughs) Not going to do that. Okay, maybe occasionally, right? This is the way this line of faith moves, right? And, and, And I talk to people all the time, and you know, I watch them, and, and what we think is that we're the exception to the rule, right? Well, I'm different. We can move in together, and we're strong enough to be chased. Okay, I might have been born at night, but I wasn't born last night, okay? I know how this works. You know, well, I'm just gonna go one time because I'm celebrating a friend's birthday. So I'm just gonna go to that place one time. I know it's been a problem for me in the past, but it just, It's just one time just because it's my friend's birthday, right? 
And then all of a sudden, you find yourself slipping and slipping and slipping. You've moved that line of faith to accommodate your lifestyle. And then the other issue that we often have is that there are unexplainable circumstances. There's tragedy that happens that we feel like it does not fit the character of God and we don't understand it. And so we push back to God. How many of you have ever had something happen in your life that you just can't understand why it happened that way? And you're still struggling with it. It's like wrestle, okay? I I spoke to somebody. um, We were out on the streets yesterday just walking around praying with people. And um, I spoke to a lady that she said, she said, Pastor, I'm just trying to understand why when I was five years old, this boy sexually molested me. And I, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. I don't understand why it happened. I don't understand why I was targeted. I don't understand how it became a pattern of sexual violence against me my entire life. I don't understand why it led to my drug use. I don't understand why it led to my prostitution. I'm trying to get some answers. If I could just get some answers, I think I could get some peace. She didn't have a category. Why does God allow that to happen? I'm not sure that I've got the answer. But what I do know is that the answers seldom bring you peace. The answers seldom bring peace. What I've found with people that ask questions and get answers is most of the time, the answers only lead to more questions, right? It's insatiable. You can never get your questions answered well enough because the answer is not really about the question at all. The answer is a person, his name is Jesus. And he's the answer. And he's the answer. And the problem is, is that instead of leaning in and embracing him, we push back and say, I don't understand. And so I don't want to be a part of anything that has to do with you, right? Because we don't have categories. We can't explain it. I remember as a kid um, doing some things that were crazy, And I'm thinking about how our faith works. And I was remembering when I was uh, probably 14 years old, my brother and I grew up riding motorcycles and three-wheelers and all of that stuff. And I remember um, we had this big creek in our woods, and it wasn't super deep. It was like four or five feet deep. And when the, um, in St. Louis, it gets real cold in the winter there, and um, we had had some, some cold weather, a snap where, you know, the ice had gotten pretty thick. And over time, I wasn't paying attention because I'd just been clipping across the creek and um, driving right across the ice. And it wasn't a big deal until it was a big deal, right? And, and one day, I'm driving my three-wheeler across the creek and the ice breaks. It wasn't like you see in the movies where it's like, crack, crack, crack. And then you kind of edge your way across and then it breaks behind you and falls in and you're like, shh and then you get to make it into a movie, right? It wasn't like that at all. It was, I'm riding across, and it just went, and here I am in four feet of freezing cold water with my three-wheeler at the bottom of the creek. And then you've got this ice that you've got to try to get traction on to get your three-wheeler out, right? And there's no good way to get it out because now I got to get it out the other side of the creek, but how do I get home, right? And so I'm in the water, and I'm like, 
hitting the throttle, trying to get, and it's on this ramp of ice. And so eventually I had to break the ice apart and turn it into mud, and I was all covered in freezing cold water. And then I had to get it across, and then once I got it across, the thing died because it got flooded. And so I'm trying to push it out now, and this whole thing, and what I realized is that what I thought was solid was not solid enough to support the weight of what I was putting on it right? And that's sometimes what happens with our circumstantial faith when we put faith in stuff or we put faith in what we think about God as opposed to who God is. And eventually when that breaks, we, we end up in a, a situation where we feel like we're dying and we're, we're struggling and we're stuck and we can't get out. And we're like, man, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to move forward. And we end up lodged in this place where we can't move. But the problem is, is that you put your faith in something that couldn't support it. See, your faith can't be in circumstances. Your faith can't be in miracles. Your faith can't be in provision. Your faith has to be in the historically verifiable fact that Jesus came, he, he lived a sinless life, he died on a cross, he rose again, and ever lives to make intercession for you. That's where you gotta put your faith. Everything else is shaky. Every miracle is shaky. Every expectation on God is shaky at best. But belief in the historically verifiable truth of who Jesus is and what he accomplished is the only thing worth putting our faith in. And just like the people on that Palm Sunday who were horrible at interpreting what Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem meant, they were terrible at understanding what that meant. And we're the same way. We're horrible at interpreting circumstances. We don't understand. When I was down here at Target at Canton Crossing, it's always kind of comical to me when I'm coming out of the Target parking lot because you have stop signs on three sides. But when you're coming in from Boston Street into the parking lot, there's no stop sign there, right? And so, so you have people that, and the reason they did it is because they don't want to back traffic up onto Boston Street, right? Once that light turns, you don't want a bunch of people sitting there blocking this up because there's a lot of traffic. And so as, as you sit there, you got people that are coming out of the Target parking lot that don't realize that the people coming in don't have a stop sign, right? And so they sit there and then they start to take off and then they stop and then they, and then they stop. And then, and then they, they honk and they start yelling at people and you see them like raising their hands and gesturing and waving at people with that one finger and, and just, you know, just angry at the world. And the whole time, they're the ones that are wrong, right? They're the ones that don't understand. They're the ones that have missed the perspective that, hey, none of these people have a stop sign, but they're angry, Right? And this is kind of what is happening in this narrative that we're reading about Palm Sunday. Like these people, they're angry and they end up crucifying Jesus after the week is over because they didn't understand things from his vantage point. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They didn't understand the permanence of the throne that Jesus was establishing. And we do much the same thing. We're sitting at the stop sign, honking and yelling and angry because Jesus isn't stopping. And he's like, I don't have a stop sign. And you can't see it from my perspective, right? Now, when you're coming from the other direction, 
You see it. And, and here's what I've noticed about people that are coming from the other direction, that, that know that there's no stop sign. And then you got people in front of them that think there should be a stop sign, right? And so you got the people that are driving behind them. Amanda's smiling because she's one of them. And, and you just, you honk at them. You're like, go, just go. for the love of Mike, go. You're going to clog this thing up, right? It's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. And so this is what the people are experiencing. This is what the people are experiencing. They have their own ideas. Because when John the Baptist starts yelling, hey, prepare the way for the Messiah. He's coming. And I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. Wait for it. Wait for it. This is going to be awesome. I'm baptizing with water. But he's going to baptize with fire. Man, they're waiting for the fire trucks, man. They are ready for Jesus to do something. Then he, he does his first miracle, you know, turns the water into wine. Everybody's like, check that out. That was just water to wine. Wait for the fire to come. Yes. And then he starts casting out demons. And people are like, what? Check that out. He's just getting warmed up. He is still... He's still in the corner. The bell hadn't even rung yet. He's just over there doing a little shadow boxing. And then he starts confronting the oppressive religious traditions, right? And he starts, he starts yelling at people. And he's like, look, you Pharisees, you go around the world trying to make a single disciple. And then when you do, you make them twice the son of hell as you are. And everybody's like, yeah, get him, Jesus. Can't wait to see what he does to the Romans. He just started in the house. Wait till he gets to the Romans because these guys are our boys, but wait till he starts kicking on the Romans. Then it's going to be something. And then he starts raising people from the dead and they're like, are you kidding me right now? Look at this guy. He's here. He's, he's fixing to bring the fire. Here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. And then he rides in on a donkey. What's he doing on a donkey, Jesus? Did they have... Did they have any horses at the, at the used animal lot? Did they, they only have a donkey? Well, maybe when we throw some robes down on the ground and some palm leaves, it'll turn into a horse. And then he can ride on a horse and it'll be awesome. And then he'll take it right into Herod's court. And yeah. Then it happened that way. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter four. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience. It's a group of Jewish believers who were pressured by the Jewish community and circumstances in, in general to abandon their newfound faith in Jesus. The pressure is on for these people because they're not allowed in the synagogues anymore. They're not, nobody's doing business with them anymore because they're this cult, right, of, of, of the way and they follow Jesus and, and it's all crazy. And so this guy's writing to the Hebrew believers He's trying to encourage them as they're going through this struggle. And so he starts to make the case in Hebrews chapter 1, 2, and 3, who Christ is. For three chapters, he develops a case that Jesus is the Messiah. And then kind of as he's wrapping up here, chapter 4, verse 14, he says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. I get that your circumstances seem overwhelming. I get that you're being pushed out 
in the business community. I get that you're not allowed to worship where you used to worship. I get that your friends have turned on you. I get that things look bad for you right now. But guess what? You don't have a high priest that can't understand you. So hold on to what you believe. Not what you see, not what you experience. Hold on to what you believe. We sang this song, and I'm gonna have Levi come in just a second, and we're gonna sing it one more time. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. That's what we hold on to. That's what we hold on to because circumstances change. And what we've just seen from scripture is that we're not good at interpreting circumstances anyway. We can't even interpret a stop sign the right way. How are we gonna interpret a move of God the right way, right? Like we lose our mind at a stop sign. How are we possibly gonna interpret the intent of an omniscient God? There's no way. There's no way. The foundation of our faith again, is the historically verifiable fact that Jesus Christ came as a baby. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead and appeared to more than 500 people over a 40-day period testifying of who he was. That is a miracle that we hold on to. You know that there is more written on the person of Jesus than there is on Julius Caesar? who actually hired his own historian to give accounts of his life. There is more historical evidence for Jesus rising from the dead than there is that Julius Caesar lived. But historians don't have a problem believing in Julius Caesar, but they have a problem believing in this man, Jesus, who changed everything, right? Levi, would you come? I'm going to tell a quick story, and then we're going to sing and worship together before we're dismissed. When I was growing up... um, I used to go on a canoe trip every year with our Royal Ranger group, and I always rode in the canoe with my dad. So um, one year I got to, uh, I was going, I was about 16 or 17 years old probably, and I've been canoeing several times, you know, probably 15 or 20 times I've been canoeing, and I was always in the front of the boat because I was like 15 pounds, you know, I was this little skinny guy. And so they always put me in in the front and my dad would sit in the back of the boat. And this one year, my dad couldn't go with us on the float trip. And so um, they put me in the front, even though I had been on more canoe trips, but this guy, they put him in the back and this was his first canoe trip ever, but he was the heaviest guy. And so they put him in the back because you want the back of the, you want the boat when you're going down the river to do this, right? You don't want it doing this. And so they, they put, put him in the back of the boat and me, and the guy's shouting at me for two days. We're doing a, a 26 mile canoe trip. And on this canoe trip, guy's just yelling at me, pedal on the right, pedal on the right. And he, his voice was exactly like that too. Pedal on the left, pedal on the left. And then we'd be going, we get like, a quarter of a mile. Soon as we hit a rapid, canoe would go over. Get it emptied out, put all our stuff back in it, set it back up, get in again. Next rapid, get it out, dump the canoe, put everything back in, get in it again, start going again. Paddle on the left, paddle on the left. And we're going down, and the whole time, we probably flipped that canoe 30 times in two days. And and I remember riding with my dad, and I kind of became the, you know, the butt of all of the jokes um, 
on the canoe trip and everybody was laughing at us and, and all of that. And I remember riding with my dad and in 20 or so canoe trips, we had never flipped a canoe one time. Not one time. And then like 20, 30 times on one trip. So at some point you're thinking, I might not be the problem. I remember riding down the river with my dad and sometimes he would shoot into a tree on purpose to get the canoe at the right angle to hit the rapids the right way. I remember there were times when he would run it up on the rocks on purpose because he didn't have a good enough view of how the current was laying. And he wanted to make sure that he could get us into a spot where he could see so he could direct us through. I remember there were times when we would put more people's stuff in our canoe because they knew that our canoe wasn't going to get wet, right? And so our canoe would be a little heavier and there would be times when we have to walk it through and, and different things. I remember one time his hat came off. He used to wear like an Indiana Jones hat when we were out there and his hat came off and floated down the river. And I remember going over to pick it up. And when we picked up the hat, there was a water moccasin coiled up underneath the hat. And after we cleaned up all the pee out of the canoe, we had a good rest of the trip um, down, down the river, you know. But there were these, these moments, you know, where you're thinking, man, this is important who we ride with. It's important who we ride with. It doesn't matter about the obstacles you face. It matters who you're in the canoe with. Jesus promised us in this life there will be trouble. But he also says but I have overcome them all. Not only have I been down this river before, but I'm already downriver, and I'm upriver, and I'm up on the bluffs looking down at you, and I'm everywhere that you need me to be, so just get in the boat with me. And if you get in the boat with me, you'll be fine. You're gonna be fine. But you can't put your faith in the canoe because the canoe ain't gonna do anything for you. It all depends on who you're letting Steer. Who are you going to let steer? And I would recommend to you today that you got to put your belief in Christ alone. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For a list of scriptures or media used in the message, click on the links in the description. You can also visit us at highlandcommunity.church for more sermons like this, or click the Give button in the upper right-hand corner to donate if this ministry has blessed your life.